It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Abergan. And over the last eight months or so, I've been doing this occasional series called The History of Data in American Politics, where we've done three parts so far, all with Daniel Kreese of the University of North Carolina. And our latest chapter kind of brought us right up to the 2016 election, looking at how Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are or aren't using data to target voters. Well, this week I thought we could add a little bit to that conversation and nudge it forward a a tad because my colleague Claire Malone recently wrote about Donald Trump's data operation and in particular a kind of targeting they hope to do that is really unusual in the history of American politics. So Claire Malone, who listeners may know from the Elections Podcast, but over here on the What's the Point feed... Welcome. Hi. It's good to be here, Jody. Usually I say welcome to 538, but you work here. Yeah. No, this is, I work here. So before we talk about how Trump is targeting voters in this way that you you reported on, it's probably worth talking about how quote unquote normal campaigns or normal targeting happens, which I know we, you know, we, we discussed this a little bit with Daniel Kreese, but lay it out for us. What's a normal targeting of voters look like? Basically normal, normal targeting is campaigns go after what they call a universe of likely voters. And you know, so the so that means people who have voted in past primary elections, past general elections, sort of like the you would you might think of like the responsible people who on election day are walking around with I voted stickers, right? And so they will gather information from their, you know, their data companies that are helping them out with voter files and they say, okay, these are people who are, let's say, likely Republican voters, likely Democratic voters, and they are going to basically pound those households with information about their particular candidate. So they're trying to persuade people towards their point of view, their candidate in particular. So it's basically like narrow the field yes. or the universe and, yes. you know, <laughs> and say we just want to play on the grounds of people who kind of w- are known quantities, right? Right. right. Yeah. You're not going to – it's it's sort of seen as a bit of a futile effort to say, oh, I mean like – do you want to turn out someone who's like not even sure they believe in the process, right? We've all we've mm-hmm. all talked to that person at the bar who's like, I don't know, I don't vote because I don't think it matters, and like, blah, blah. you know, you don't want to talk. Like that's a lot of work for a campaign to get right. them all the way from there to vote for my right. Candidate. Exactly. You want they want the people who you're talking to at the bar who's like really who's like reading the newspaper every day and is really invested, but they're still they're not quite sure. They're on your they're on your team, whatever your team is, you know, Republican mm-hmm. or Democrat, but they're still sort of fighting a battle in their own mind about who they want to support. Yeah. And in some of the reporting I've done around this before and in my conversations with with Daniel Kreese, it's like I've heard it described as the the registered non-voter as like the prime person, meaning someone who's maybe like lapsed one cycle of voting. Yeah. So like they registered a while back, they were a voter, right. they lapsed for a little bit. So they weren't you know, a steady quantity that we know, okay, you've, we know how you voted the last four consistent elections, so we actually don't need to worry about you because you're set, but you also are not completely off the grid. Right. You are someone who cares about this, and now we want to persuade you. And I have like a little rant about this, <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's worth noting listeners are probably some of them saying this to themselves right now as you listen to this, but it's like, it's very cynical mm-hmm. way of approaching oh, sure. politics and in many ways is kind of representative of everything that is kind of like a little bit of a problem with our democracy because it really is – we have this sort of gauzy notion of trying to persuade everyone out there and instead it's just 
targeting and targeting and targeting. And obviously, I know there's an efficiency argument, right? You only have so many resources. You're not yeah. going to waste your resources. But to me, it's just kind of like is the perfect encapsulation of all of the things that are problematic in our democracy, campaign finance, redistricting, the media, all that just kind of in this particular act of just – Slicing and dicing and targeting a very small niche, you see all those forces at well, play. Well, yeah, it's that's true. I mean, people campaigns are only going after people that they think are sort of in touch with the news and the election. And it's actually, I'm coming off a weekend trip to Monticello, so I'm thinking a lot about America, <laughs> <laughs> about like American democracy. But but Jefferson's whole point was, if we're going to have this form of government, then we need an engaged, enlightened citizenry, right? That was their whole point: is that we only want we need people who are involved in the process. And so, in some ways, yeah, you know. The, if you are if you have taken yourself out of the if you don't vote you know if you're not if you're not on those rolls it i mean sure it like you know we are, idealistically we want everyone in there but realistically it is pragmatic but it's also in some ways it's sort of to me it's like this it's almost getting to like a more uh not metaphysical what's the, what's <laughs> the right word uh it's a more contemplative point about like who should who's participating in democracy? Don't we want the most responsible, engaged people? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, so it's sort of like a double-edged. Right. And when I've brought this up with on this podcast before and this, as part of this series, I think uh, one thing to think about is like, is it the job of campaigns who are really there at the very end kind of of this process yeah. to be the ones to do that, you know, larger, they more civic-minded yeah. stuff? They want to win. They exactly. Win. And they have – they actually have less money even though we talk about the enormous amounts of money in politics. Campaigns have less money than the media does or the government does and so – you know, or our school system does uh, in certain counties. Uh, so, you know, it's really the job of these other factors to engage people. Okay, so anyway, rant slightly over. <laughs> but uh, but that's the context, right? So it's let's narrow the playing field for most campaigns. Now, the Trump campaign is kind of, as you learned – Different. 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 Inverting that somehow. Yeah. So so this memo that I got a hold of outlined what was basically their primary season get out the vote strategy, which I think we can make an educated guess and say that some part of this is still at play in the general election. And basically what this oh, – Wait. A memo that you got a hold of? What do you mean? You just found it on the street? <laughs> I just found it on the street. It's amazing. Um, so uh, – I got a hold of a memo that's from January of 2016, and it was written by Matt Brainerd, who uh, is a guy who was formerly in charge of something that the campaign called Trump Tech, Mm -hmm. which was basically uh, its data operation, which they were sort of denying existed for, uh, I would say, a good portion of the primaries. Um, And the memo basically says, and this is before Iowa, right? Iowa was was on February 1st. Um, and it basically sa- it's basically outlining a really unorthodox get out the vote strategy. Um, and you know, he writes that based on an internal analysis of our own modeling data and third party research, and considering the exceptionalism of our candidate, I advise that we put 100 percent of our organizational effort into enfranchising the conventionally low propensity voters that support support our candidate. So that means low propensity is sort of the key word here, which is – and he goes on to say this in other parts of of the memo, but he's basically saying these are people who have, because of a vicious cycle that you kind of just talked about, Jody, have been ignored by other campaigns. 
And they're saying, listen, all of the people who are high propensity voters, right, people who are likely to vote in Republican primaries and are for our guy, they're already getting all the earned media that, that you know, Trump's on cable all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't need to send mailers to their house. We don't need to call their house because Donald Trump is streaming to them through pretty much every modern means possible. What we want to do is focus on low propensity voters. And they sort of figured out that a lot of people who who were Republican voters um, who were low propensity were actually for Donald Trump, right? And it's sort of like – it plays on that, that that idea that Trump is getting in touch with people who feel disaffected by the political system, right? He's an outsider. He's So he's appealing to those and people. And he talks about this in his rallies all the time. We're bringing tons of new people into this process. And we'll talk – We'll fact check that we'll in a sec, yeah. because, but, but it fits into that notion. Right. right? So, so the, the logic of this was we are just going to focus on those low propensity voters and, and, and turn them out, tell them where to go and vote, call them all the time, door knock in those particular neighborhoods. And, and that, was their, that was their strategy. That was sort of where they decided to direct their efforts. And I think I'll point out here that, you know, Recently, the Trump campaign has been pulling out in a decent amount of cash, but I think they were very – they were sort of notably, I would say, underfunded mm-hmm. during the primary campaign. They didn't have the reputation for ground game data that other campaigns had. Now, when I've talked to people who are sort of inside the Trump campaign, they said, well, some of that was sort of like obfuscation. We didn't want people to really know that we were uh, – Actually had our act together. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think it, it sort of comes from, you know, people who talk to me who have worked with the campaign sort of said that was – I think it was a little bit part of their culture. But also I think they have – their their nose is very sensitive to – maybe not nose. But they're, they're sensitive to their perception in the world. And they wanted to get as far away from the establishment, you know, rail as they could. They wanted people to see them as – unorthodox and scrappy and lean and just like succeeding without the normal, um, you know, the, the normal drudgery that you have to go through of data and polling and all that stuff. But they were doing some of this as we see behind behind the scenes, or at least one person in the campaign was 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 doing this thinking. And I mean, looking at this memo, it's just it starts with math, right? The first part is – and there's formulas in here. Mm-hmm. I mean the first part – people should go see this memo. But the first part says mo- voter math, two coefficients. All voters can be assigned two coefficients. Their propensity to participate, as you were just saying, which is P. And then their likelihood of supporting our candidate, which is T. And then XP times Y, T equals outcome. There's other formulas in here as well. But you talked about P. What is the T? It's Trump. It's like Trump support. Their likelihood to support Trump is T. Is T. So – Okay, so they were going for low P, high T voters, right? Meaning, let me just say that over and over because it's yeah, fun yeah. to say low P, high T, but meaning people who aren't in that known universe, as you were saying, mm-hmm. they, but still we think that they are Trump. They're Trump people. They're Trump people. They're, low P, high T. They're picking T. up what he's putting down. And the memo, by the way, is embedded in the piece, so people can scroll through it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and it so. goes through each state and kind of mm-hmm. tries to say like what are the coefficients in each of this state which state has a higher ratio of the low p versus the high t and vice versa and try and really kind of to, to target um again we'll talk about whether this worked and whether these are enough voters to really carry donald trump but like going back to this larger idea of efficiency being at the heart of why there's targeting right on the one hand i understand this 
approach, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like this is our strategic advantage are these mm-hmm. voters that no one else is targeting. But when you talked about how the Trump campaign didn't have much money, this feels like almost really inefficient in a way in, at the same time because it's like these that's a lot of work to mm-hmm. turn these people all the way mm-hmm. from low P to to voters for us. So sure. it's like is this efficient or inefficient? I can't even figure that out. So I think – I th- every everyone that I talk to, you know, Republican data strategists or or you know people who had worked on national campaigns, uh, people like Daniel Kreese who mm-hmm. study this academically, basically said, yeah, it's kind of a crazy strategy. Um, but I think that the you know Matt Brainerd, who I eventually interviewed, sort of acceded that this low propensity turnout model was. I mean, yeah, it's it's he knew it was unorthodox. Uh, Matt Brainerd worked at the. RNC, like he'd he'd work for Frank Luntz, who's a pollster. This is a guy who'd kind of been around campaigns, though not in sort of a high level capacity. But he knew he sort of knew what he was doing. Um, And I think it's I think this memo is sort of a gamble that really, really uh, was sort of depending on the exceptionalism of Trump's uh, media bombardment of America. I also will say that so, so he was saying, you know, like he was saying this is su- where there's such a media saturation with Trump that like, yeah, like let's just let's just take a gamble and say like we'll turn out these low propensity people. Now, other people that I talk to who are sort of like in the data game and sort of, you know, analyzing campaigns say, you know, it probably couldn't have happened. One, sure, they were right that like Trump is an exceptional candidate and it, you you wouldn't even dream about this with pretty much anyone else. It was also a really splintered field. We had 17 candidates. That's that's split in a lot of votes. Um, so that probably played mm-hmm. into things. Um, but then this sort of gets into so so yes to your to your original point, Jody. Yeah, it is kind of inefficient. But I think they were sort of taking a gamble knowingly and saying like, let's try it. Let's see what, let's see what happened. Now we actually like looked at the data after the primary, and we found that that you know 88 percent of the people who voted for Trump were Republican, regular Republican voters. Now, that means that some of them were people who generally just vote in the general election. They don't vote in the primaries. So Trump was sort of like maybe getting more people to like, you know, this was a, a thing that was said throughout the primaries. This is historic. This is big, big turnout. And that was the fact that I think that a lot of people were feeling more energized, right? Kind of earlier in the process. Earlier in the process. So it's not actually clear that he brought anyone new in. We'll get back to my conversation with Claire Malone in a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Me Undies. This is my favorite stat that I refuse to actually fact check, but you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But chances are your underwear is probably boring. Well, MeUndies is here to change that. Every pair of MeUndies is made from sustainably sourced modal, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. Nothing can describe the fit and feel of MeUndies, but once you try them on, you'll understand why they are called the world's most comfortable underwear. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free. No questions asked. This part I can almost guarantee no one is going to ask you questions about why you are returning your underwear. 
There's also a MeUndies subscription plan, fresh underwear in every sense of the word, delivered to you every month. Right now, whether it's the subscription plan or a single pair, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash WTP. That's for What's the Point? MeUndies.com slash WTP for 20% off your first order. Once again, that's MeUndies.com slash WTP. Okay, back to the show, and we'll pick it up with this idea of Donald Trump bringing in new voters into the process. It's what his data strategy, as you've been hearing, is predicated on. But as Claire Malone just mentioned, some of the numbers from the primary don't really bear that out. So here we go. So I guess that's where this, you know, this math rubber hits the voting road. (laughs) I don't know if that's a pretty awful uh, metaphor. But is that... He wasn't really – so far, the Trump campaign hasn't been doing the thing that kind of this strategy is is completely based upon, which is getting new people. That's amazing. 88 percent are traditional Republicans. So he's playing in that same field as everyone else was. Yeah. And and, and one, one strategist that I talked to said, listen, they might – think that that's that their strategy was working but in reality this is just a this is a communications campaign yeah i.e trump is just such a force to be reckoned with when it comes to you know we've said we've called it media manipulation whatever you want to call it trump is such a force in our popular culture that this that it didn't even matter what they were doing as far as turnout right he was just he was going to get out there and and send the message no matter what. And, and and you know, another strategist that I talked to said, okay, like, let's, you know, in the general election, he might very well be turning out people who uh, have sort of historically identified as Democrats, but actually have leaned Republican for, for the past few election cycles, he said, or, or, you know, he might get these, you know, union Democrats, Reagan Democrats, whatever you want to call them, they might turn out and vote top of the ticket, this person said, you know, he's actually kind of turning the party turnout strategy on its head because they might vote for Trump at the top of the ticket for president, but they're going to turn out and vote the rest of the races. They're going to vote against the Republican Party possibly, right? So right. He's, he, it could screw up down ballot races. So in some ways, like this this turnout strategy of reaching unlikely uh, voters who could who would vote for Republican for president could backfire in, in down ballot races, which is an interesting – uh, an interesting thing to think about. Do you have any sense of how this memo was received internally, regardless of whether we think this was the most efficient strategy? Yeah, um, the strategy was implemented in in primary states, and I think that the, the interesting thing of what I could glean about the culture of of the Trump campaign and how it approached data was kind of most most modern campaigns are like obsessed with data. Right there, yeah. like you know, this is this is sort of has become a figure that everyone just throws out. That's you know, Hillary Clinton has like a hundred person data team, and like you know, people will get regular campaigns will get memos every morning about polling or how's this going and that going on the ground. And the Trump campaign, from how is it? It was described to me by Matt Brainerd, who basically sort of described himself as building Trump tech, which is again mm-hmm. what they called the data operation up from the ground. Was a lot of the campaign senior advisors didn't really give that much thought to data. They sort of just said – they sort of signed off on Matt Brainerd's stuff and said, OK, sounds good. And Matt said when he, that when he came in in the fall, uh, they really didn't have much of a data operation. So they were gathering a lot of emails from Eventbrite, the the online RSVP service, where, where if you want to go to a Trump rally, you got to RSVP. You got to put your email in there and they'll send you 
they'll fo- you know ideally they'll they'll follow up with you afterwards matt said when he came in they weren't really doing much with those emails so he you know started you know started using that started sending out emails to that that list they he sort of got a data entry service where if you had gone into a trump campaign office and filled out a little paper card he said he standardized those cards with everyone's information and then you would fedex the that card to this data entry service in texas and they'd sort of put it all in in online form so it was sort of building up these more rudimentary um forms of just things that that you know you got to do right it's sort of like yeah. the 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 hoof it out kind of kind of part of, of campaigning but matt was also you know sort of working on getting contracts with well, you know more sophisticated uh the more sophisticated parts of data that that campaigns will do so he uh, said that he got helped get a contract with L2, which is a politica da- political data firm that basically, you know, uses kind of gets so it has it gets voter files from lots of different states and uh, sort of gives campaigns models, right? Like mm-hmm. demographic models of certain kinds of voters, and that included models from a, a company called Haystack DNA. Which was start, which is started by progressive Obama alums that sort of, you know, above board sold all these models to L two and so Matt Matt Brainerd kind of told me, you know, like we were using data modeling that was based off of you know the best data people in the business, which were the Obama yeah. people, you know. So so it's an interesting. The, the Trump campaign did have an idea through data of who these voters were. They weren't just they weren't just flying blind and and putting their finger to the wind and saying like at rallies, these are my people. I think it's also worth bringing in here the the nature of the relationship with the RNC, who mm-hmm. does a lot of this work historically, and there's often you know coordination. And the fact that, as we I think just know, that Trump and the RNC haven't as been as coordinated as past campaigns. You know, a lot of the contracts with vendors who have this information, a lot of that flows through the through the RNC or the DNC to the campaign, and it's coordinated and it goes all the way down the ticket. And the and so just this lack of ongoing coordination start you start to see it in this sort of scattershot approach to yeah data. i think initially they were hesitant as, as as far as it was told to me they were hesitant to sort of sign on with the rnc because you know they didn't want to i think they didn't want to pass back if, if you use the rnc data basically after your campaign is over or whatever you you, you, yeah. you, you your data flows back in and enriches the files as they say right. right you get more you've gathered more information on voters and we want to use it to the to the greater good and i think initially the trump campaign was a little bit they wanted their cards held close to the chest now obviously their relationship with the rnc <laughs> has broadened since and they yeah. i think they are using uh listen they don't have as many field operatives or directors as any normal presidential campaign would on the ground in the states and so the rnc i think is trying to make up that ground and they've got people out there in the states but you know as people that i talked to said there it's 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 not the same top tier republican talent as far as data and field organizing goes as it has been in other election cycles because a lot of these people people from the romney team you know romney data whatever operations they're setting things out Mm -hmm. these these are people who they might not be publicly never trump but they are i would say in the in the susan collins yeah yeah 
And and this actually brings up something that Daniel Kreese is really good about reminding us um, and that we've discussed a number of times on in this series, which is that this is this isn't we shouldn't think of data as like a magic formula that helps you win a particular contest. But it's really an ongoing process that builds on itself and the real kind of advantage that Democrats have had historically and Republicans are trying to make up for is just this like incremental progress, refining the data sets, merging data sets, getting more information, following up, all that stuff that happens over the course of not you know months to get right. over the finish line and win an election, but over years and years and years. And that's really the place where this could be a problem for the RNC is just kind of like losing a cycle. Yeah. And, and like you talked about, this hesitancy to sort of pass back the information and so yeah. forth. And I think that that has probably been remedied by now. I mean, I, I would, I'm, I have no doubt that the, that one of the reasons why Rens Priebus wanted to strengthen the relationship between the Republican Party and Trump is that like, hell yeah, they don't want to miss out on an yeah. election cycle. And like, you know, this, all this data gathering and voter enrichment, it's not sexy stuff, you know, like it's, when I first came to on, to our listeners, if there's any podcast for which it's sexy, it is this podcast. But yes, I take your point. <laughs> when I when I first came on to five thirty eight, like one of the first stories I did was a profile of a pollster, which is essentially my way of like learning how the heck yeah. all of this works. And it was like it's a slog. It's a it's a thing that's like in some ways, it's like purposefully opaque, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's you gotta it's it's the it's the business of trying to figure out you know what does a like a white lady who lives in the suburbs who's voted such and such way the past couple of election cycles, how will she vote? Well, probably this way. You know, it's sort of like trying to simplify. People are actually pretty simple uh, demographically. (laughs) Campaigns would like to think that. But I always find – take comfort in the fact that people are weird and they are unpredictable (laughs) and you can do all this number crunching and then they just show up at the polls and just do something totally Yeah, I mean I I will say like who knows what's going to happen in November? Like (laughs) – <laughs> Shoot, that was going to be my last question, Claire. <laughs> What's going to happen in November? But yeah, this wall, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. And certainly Trump has raised – I guess this is a good last question. Trump has raised a lot of money, yes. which you know, over and over yes. we talk about data and modeling and algorithms and all stuff. And it really is just like it's money. Do you have the money and the people and the resources to – to actually put this to good use. And so Trump has really raised a lot of money. He's catching up with Clinton. So do you think that we're going to see some more normalization, for lack of a better word, on this front as we get closer and closer to the election? Well, listen, if you want to continue with a low propensity voter turnout strategy in the general election, that means you need more people on the ground knocking on doors and being a friendly, smiling face that says, going to the hey, bar and talking going to, to the bar, saying like, hey, do you know where to vote yeah. on November 8th? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> You're only one of the top <laughs> reporters for one of the top political <laughs> sites in the world, but that's okay. Uh, well, Claire Malone, thank you as always, and uh, thanks for doing this reporting and helping nudge this conversation along as yeah. part of this series. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jody. You can read Claire's piece on the site now and, of course, catch Claire and me and Harry and Nate and more on the 538 Elections Podcast every Monday. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Lucina Malesio is our intern, and this is her last week. So, Lucina, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are very talented, and you've been incredibly helpful 
throughout your time here at 538. And listeners, you will keep hearing the fruits of Lucina's efforts in the weeks to come. In the meantime, though, look her up and hire her. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download it on our site. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or the new ESPN app. Wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.